Well, I'm happy to be back in the salon with you. I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and this volume, number 21, is a Feed the Ball production. I'm especially happy to be back with my friend and golf course builder Jim Urbina, who I was lucky enough to get to slow down from his jet-setting ways for a few minutes to talk about golf architecture with Chris Cochran. If you've listened to the show before, you know Jim's passion for the process of building golf, as Bill Coor would put it. Jim, and Bill for that matter and so many others, learned to build golf courses almost by feel, to improvise and edit in real time, to take shaping slow and let ideas develop. That glosses over all the vital elements and infrastructure that must go into the ground, of course, and all the hard work of constructing and connecting various systems in order for a course to function and to be accessed. But the golf features that players interact with and that give a course its playing characteristics and aesthetic appeal must be felt, Jim and many of his peers feel, and are usually better if they're not derived from a preordained set of plans. That, of course, is not how we think the courses of Jack Nicklaus were built, certainly not in the days when the company had 10 or 15 projects going on simultaneously around the world. For an operation of that scale to function efficiently and successfully, there would have to be more structure and more stringent sets of order, scheduling, and instruction. To get a better view of this kind of approach to building golf, what would seem to be the opposite of how Core, Urbina, Tom Doak, Gil Hans, and their associates prefer to do it, we could think of no better person to talk to than Chris Cochran, senior design associate at Nicholas Design, who began working with Nicholas in the 1980s and has stood shoulder to shoulder with the Bear on over 100 designs globally, including their copious output during the gold rush days of the 1990s. In listening to Cochran describe his outlook, experience, and personal preferences, it became clear that perhaps the gulf between how many of the best naturalist courses are built nowadays and how many Nicholas courses, and more recent ones especially, are assembled, may not be quite as wide as we first assumed. To put it another way, there's much more simpatico between the camps than you might think. Before we get started, please remember to subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts, leave a star rating and comments while there, and turn your friends on to it if they're like us and are into the playing fields of golf. Visit FeedTheBall.com for a deep library of past discussions with the game's most prominent designers and voices, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. Lastly, do yourself and the earth a favor and wash your laundry in cold water. It's a simple, one-touch way to conserve energy and take a little pressure off our stressed-out planet. We'll get into this fascinating and illuminating talk with Chris Cochran, but first, Jim has something to say about the rise and importance of the professional golf architect. You know, Derek, golf courses at the beginning of time were just kind of laid out and followed and people played the game and there was no real strategy or, or, or scorecard. They just went out and played a match play. But ironically, Dr. Alice McKenzie writes in the book, the spirit of St. Andrews that he was promoting or, or talking about the qualifications of an architect. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote to you. Do you mind? I do not mind. I'd like to hear it. And I quote Dr. Alistair McKinsey. The advent of the golf architect has done much to increase the sporting and dramatic element in golf. The true test of the value of his work is its popularity. And judging by the rapid increase in members, even on the mere rumor that the services of a well-known course architect are to be obtained, 
There can be no doubt the modern constructor of courses has achieved this. End quote. He talks about the advent of the golf course architect, how it would bring notoriety to a design. And this was released in the and and this was talked about before his death in 1934. And now, Derek, we're, today we're still talking about how the architect who they have chosen would bring notoriety to the property. And sometimes developers use that to, to catch people's attention to what they're doing. How ironic Mackenzie wrote about that 80, 90, 100 years ago. He was prescient in at least projecting the direction that golf architecture would be going over the next hundred years. Uh, we've certainly gone through many cycles where the prestige of the architect has played in, in as an individual or as a company has played an incredible role in uh, who gets the job or how the, how the courses turn out or even what types of designs and construction methods and methodologies define a, a certain era in golf. I think McKinsey's view was a little more organic than what obviously what it became after World War II and with the rise of the American Society of Golf Course Architects and other similar organizations around the world. He was thinking more in terms of a club selecting a, uh, an amateur or a, a, during that previous period, a, 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 a head professional club maker and head professional from the turn of the century and before who, you know, got all of the early jobs, at least in America, designing courses. He was thinking probably of that era or of club members laying out their own course, buying a piece of land and not consulting the quote unquote expert and laying holes out. And then invariably a professional architect such as McKinsey or his brethren would have to go in and make corrections to it either immediately or, or 10 or 15 years down the line. And, and so, you know, he, he was seeing and reacting and writing about all of the, the mistakes that had been made, but it really comes down to the idea of the golf architect being an expert in, in their field, which at some point, as he's writing this for a reason that that was not, you know, for 25 years or maybe longer, that was not a consideration. And even after Jim, even in the writings of the the mid-century architects, now you're really into the sort of the professional scientific era of golf design. They were still writing about the importance of clubs and committee members for a renovation or a new course, hiring a, a licensed or an ASGA, ASGCA or somebody who's a, who's a professional designer. And because even during that period of these golf great golf booms, not all projects were being overseen by uh, a competent architect. And the comfort level of a committee or the comfort level of an owner to entrust a professional to design his golf course must make him feel better about spending his money and the use of the land. Uh, if you couldn't, if you didn't have the ability to communicate and all you were going to do is say, Hey, uh, I'll get back with you. <laughs> Check back with me in 150 days You'll get to see what your golf course is going to look like. You know, that doesn't fly anymore. <laughs> it, right. it doesn't. You don't go stick a pole in the ground and, and check back with me. Uh, you'll get to see what it's going to be. Uh, there's promotion. There's advertisement. Uh, there's drone flyovers. Uh, there's uh, uh, before, uh, before and, and artist renderings of what it's going to look like. 
and how technology has changed what the architect's going to do. And, and back in 1904 uh, or 1908, if we talked to uh, Charles Blair McDonald, he just got a bunch of rich friends and said, hey, I'm going to go build this golf course. Uh, trust me, you'll like it. But that isn't going to happen anymore uh, unless you have somebody like Bill Coor who, who, or Bill and Ben who, who say, we have this wonderful piece of land. We're interested in building it. Uh, come along with us for the ride. Otherwise, it's more promotion, more advertising, more look who I got to build my golf course. I think the the pertinent question, you know, drawing looking back in the 1920s when when McKinsey was was prolific, and, and what caused him to write this, there there was this was the uh, uh, original rise of the what we consider the golf course architect during that time. There were instances of that in the 19, 1900s and 1910s, but. During the twenties, during the great golf boom of the of after World War One, uh, you you know everybody's busy. There's there's this core group of architects who are busy, and this is what we consider the rise of the golf course architects. Then it became a matter of really celebrity. I, I'm not sure that uh, McKinsey or Tillinghast or, or Ross maybe a little bit, but they didn't really rise to the level of what you would consider you know a celebrity or, or people who who didn't play golf would know about or, or people who played golf, but didn't pay attention would still know about that really happened after the war and in the fifties and sixties, when you, you know, you have Robert Trent Jones becomes yep. a national figure, Dick Wilson, yeah. a little bit, some of their contemporaries Cole does a commercial. Uh, Trent Jones senior does a commercial for American express. Do you know who I am? Right. There you go. Yes. And then when Pete Dye comes along, it becomes, you know, he's, he was arguably the most famous architect of all time. Even, even now, you know, just the average golfer knows who Pete Dye is. The average golfer still, the average golfer doesn't know who who Bill Core is or or or, or Tom Doak or, or sadly Jim Rubina. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> come on, come on, Derek. You always throw that little bit in there. <laughs> <laughs> I put you in with some pretty good company. Now, Thank now you. the I'm average sure. golfer definitely knows who who Jack Nicklaus is. They oh, knew who sure. Arnold Palmer was. For they sure. know. They know. Um, you know, they know who Fred Couples is when he tacks his name on the rare course that he's involved with, or, or that kind of thing. But there's not a, um, you know, the, the golf architect celebrity has has kind of gone through phases of being where that's really important, and then it's waned. And I think that what I was getting at is, I think the the question now is, to what role does that notoriety or the name brand matter in our current state of of design uh, i have some ideas but i i'll flip it back to you and through your experiences how important is it to be kind of well known and, and well liked and have your work known and be somebody that the club wants to be affiliated with great great observations by you great points um i could go back and say that uh when walter travis started to to get his name out there uh, in the golf architecture it was because of his playing abilities and the word spread amongst those people that a uh, Walter Travis, you know, a good, really good player. Oh, by the way, pretty creative architect uh, could, could do some really cool things. Uh, you're right. Uh, Tillian Hast, uh, uh, McKenzie, Ross, uh, they were not uh, so well known. Rayner was only known because McDonald said, go hire this guy. Uh, thankful for McDonald, uh, Rayner's career uh, blew up, so to speak. So, yes, it's important to have some celebrity attachment to that. But when Jim Urbina calls, uh, when uh, 
people look out for a, a new golf course design. Uh, they don't think of Jim Urbina. I wish that they did. Uh, I don't have enough of that of that celebrityness. Uh, thank you, Derek. You include me <laughs> in that that <laughs> those uh, kind words of yourself. Talented but, in the group talented, of talented thank people. You, thank you. But when you think about Nicholas, when you think about uh, the late great Arnold Palmer, when you think about the people that uh, back in that that celebrity era. Uh, using their name, their talents, their playing ability, uh, their charisma, uh, their ability to design golf courses. People like that. Fazio, uh, people like that. People attached Fazio's name to really beautiful, well-thought-out golf courses. So there were those people, and then there was the people like Emerson Armstrong, who did Sankity Head. And he only got the job because uh, Mr. Gray, who owned the property, knew of him and his father. So sometimes it's just an attachment to somebody that you know, an owner who trusts you, who believes that you can do it. Mr. Mike Kaiser, senior, trusts that Jim Urbina can do that, and hopefully we'll get to do something someday. So there's two parts to that, the trust and the, and, and the, and the, and the ability to to work with people for a long time. They, they have that ability. And then people who don't know you, uh, they, they rely on other people's talking about you, celebrity about you. And so it's tough. It's a tough business. And McKenzie uh, realized uh, before his death that, uh, that the new golden age was going to be about people who could uh, draw and use their name to get those uh, clubs started, a membership rolling, uh, the advent that he said uh, of notoriety to the architecture. It's a tough one. It, uh, you know, you have celebrity or you know somebody. Yeah, and, and in this equation, it, sadly, and I think this is true, you'd, you'd know more about it and could testify to this more than me, is I'm not sure where competency or the vision of a course or a product or the, the finished product comes into a selection. If we're talking about the, the role of, of name recognition, if we're talking about that, I don't know that producing a, a well-functioning, well-designed, interesting golf course is the number one thing on the checklist. I think that being able to connect yourself, and this was certainly true during the rise of, of, of Nicholas design and certainly true during the, the Fazio era. And obviously before that, the Trent Jones era and Pete Dye yes, benefited sir. from this, but, but, but once these people established themselves as name brands, it was very important for committees or in, in their case, more, more specifically owners, developers, resorts to want to connect their name to them because they were saleable. And there yes, was a, a bullet. It was less of a, of a business risk to have that name on your golf course and I would imagine today a lot of that same, I don't, I don't want to say fear, but apprehension or concern is at play at clubs when you have to convince an entire membership to hire somebody when you're investing, you know, five, seven, ten million, maybe even maybe just one and a half million, but whatever the, the number is, when you're doing that and you have to get everybody on board, it's a lot easier to get people on board with Gil Hance right now, if he's in the running, than it is with no with a lot of other people who would no also question. do a great job with their golf course. So it's a it's a that no notoriety question. becomes a safety net for clubs and and developers to fall back on. It's the safe choice. And 
for the for the discussion uh, between me and you, I think nobody else is listening, is that when Riley Johns and Keith Reb did the golf course in Florida, the nine hole golf Winter course. Winter Park. Winter Park. Yep. When they did that golf course, I thought that was genius. And they took a municipality and they made it uh, fun to play. And, and they, they broke down all the rules and barriers. And I thought that was going to take off. I thought there was going to be a million winter parks. And so I'm not sure how that notoriety keeps going. But you could see why. You could see why an owner-developer committee would say, well, you have to hire Tom Fazio. Because all you have to go do is look at the other 10 or 15 Tom Fazio golf courses that were done, and they're all striking beauties, uh, works of art. And so how does the Keith Reb and Riley Johns Winter Park model, how does it transform into the Fazio, you've got to hire these guys? They're the, the, what they did was, was total genius. I'm not sure when that happens and how it happens. Well, I'm, I have to confess it's, well, it's not a confession, but I have to to point the finger back at in my department. I mean, I think that the the rankings, hundred greatest rankings, have a lot to do with that. When when Jack Nicholas is breaking into the the top ten with Muirfield Village in in the early seventies, and then he follows up with Shoal Creek, and he's attached to Harbor Town. And when Tom Fazio wins, like. 15 best new course of the year awards in the 80s and 90s um people notice that developers notice that so having a course that places high in the rankings is the best business model and uh winter park is a nine-hole course It, it won't be in the most sets of rankings it's a wonderful course it's what golf should be like in my opinion it's the golf i want to play but Without the backing of that rankings, you know, you, it's it's still kind of the little course that could, and still a lot of people. It just doesn't break through the noise. There's a lot. It's very difficult to break through the noise in any media environment now, and uh, golf architecture is no different. Funny, and yet today we're talking about this just as McKenzie had professed to us that the advent of the architect would bring notoriety to a club. And yet today we could still debate this for hours and hours and hours. I'd like on this on this topic, you know, we I, we mentioned a minute ago that, you know, the earliest architects that McKenzie was talking about were often itinerant club pros, usually from Scotland or local professionals who were considered the experts of their time. They would yeah. lay out the golf courses. They weren't considered yeah. professional architects. There's never there's never been an actual profession of golf course architecture. It's a it's a trade, but we use the term architect. I, I wonder if Jack Nicholas considers himself an architect or you know, he was a player. Was he a player designer? What 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 does he consider himself? Maybe maybe Chris Cochran, who's gonna be our guest, will bring him in and we can ask him questions along those lines and, and get his feeling about uh, the, the concept of the professional architecture in, in 2022 and uh, other topics related to the way their, their operation works. I agreed. And as you know, Derek, uh, Chris Cochran, uh, who we're going to talk with today, working under the greatest player of all time, iconic player of all time, Jack Nicklaus, uh, what that must have been like, what that was on a day-to-day basis when they were out in the field, uh, Man, oh man. I mean, I had a chance early on in my life uh, to work for Mr. Pete Dye. I wasn't versed enough to know what all the things that were going on in the world, the business side, the selling side, uh, 
all of that that went along with Pete. But for Chris to be a part of uh, Mr. Nicholas's heyday and beyond, uh, what a what a treat. Uh, I look forward to hearing more from Chris about that. All right. Well, let's bring him on. Here's Jim and I talking to Chris Cochran. Jim and I were talking in our pre-record that it's rare to talk to somebody like you who has so much institutional knowledge about golf course design and uh, has that wealth of experience. I mean, you've worked all over the world. You've worked for one of the most famous, well-known architects that's ever lived. You've been involved in some spectacular projects, some interesting projects. So I wonder, Chris, tell us just real quickly what Nicholas Design was was like, what was the company like, the environment like when you started? I believe you started kind of in the mid-80s period. So Nicholas Design had been, what, 15, 12, 15 years into existence at that point, maybe not quite that much. Yeah. So I started in January of 84 and we weren't Nicholas Design. We were Golf Force. And that was the name of the company. Uh, That that was the support company uh, that supported Jack's uh, design. You know, and we were golf force, I don't know, maybe for four or five years. And then they switched the name over to uh, Nicholas Design. But when I was at Golf Force, probably the biggest influence over design besides Jack was Ed Etchells. And Ed Etchells was Jack's agronomist. And uh, Jack, Ed was here. I forget which country club he was at in Columbus. And then he came over and he was the first golf course superintendent at Beerfield Village. And Ed was very, very involved in, uh, you know, in design with us and, and making sure that things were maintainable and sustainable. And in fact, Ed used to paint all our bunker lines. We weren't allowed to paint our own bunker lines. I mean, he did all that work. <laughs> you had to earn you know? that, so, right? Right. So when I started out uh, and, and you know, we still, not that we don't think about agronomy and sustainability, et cetera. It's, uh, it's still a very big part of our organization. It's just not, you know, as I, how would I put it? I want, I want to say overbearing, but uh, that's, that's too strong a word. It, it's not as critical as what it used to be, you know, a, 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 as big a part of our, what we do as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where, where did, um, like Bob Cup and Jay Morish fit into this arrangement at that time. Were they gone by then? Uh, Bob was still around. Jay had just left. So he left in, I think, December of of 83. And then I started in January of 84. But uh, Jay was still doing uh, the Japan stuff. So I moved to Japan in 1984 and worked on a project there. And my direct liaison was Jay. Bob Cup was still there in 84. And uh, I worked with him. We we're just doing Loxahatchee Club uh, in Jupiter, Florida. Uh, that was Scott Miller's project, but Jay was, our Bob was involved as well working on that project. And then I, after, and that's where I went to train. I was there a few months. Uh, I thought I knew what I was doing until I went to my new project. But, at, and that was Country Club of Louisiana in Baton Rouge. And then Bob was our, was my, uh, design associate that I dealt with for probably about three or four months. And then he finally left and Tom Pearson took over. When you started in this time period that we're talking about, what was your typical role on a project before you are elevated to senior design associate? So I was a, a site coordinator for about six years ago. And what a site coordinator that role is, was 
really to uh, be the liaison between design and the contractor and the owner. You know, and even though it's technically not part of our job, you know, we, we're a bit of quality control, make sure the grains are built properly, the gravel's clean, the mixed tests are done. Uh, you know, looks like the drainers shooting the drainage, making sure that it goes in properly. So that was my role as a, as a site coordinator. And, uh, you know, my first job was a tough one. And then I got laid off after Country Club of Louisiana for a winter. And uh, they got me a job with Wadsworth. So I worked with Wadsworth for five months in Tulsa uh, at Page Belcher Golf Club there. And under Bob Steele, who was a legendary character in the industry back then, shaper and just a, you know, quite a character. Uh, that's where that was the biggest help to me, you know, to actually, I ran a scraper, I ran the labor crews, I shot grains, I, I did everything. And that's where kind of everything that, uh, kind of click for me coming in from the outside with a turf degree, never building a golf course, you know, it was still it was so difficult that first year or two, but then getting laid off working for a contractor uh, was just so helpful to see exactly how to do it, what it takes to build it, what that sequencing is. And that's why, you know, anytime somebody sends me an email and they're like, you know, I'm interested in golf course architecture, how would I get involved? First thing I tell them is learn how to build a golf course. You can't design a golf course until you learn how to build it first. You know, so that was my uh, my best education was that five months working with Wadsworth. And Derek, it's interesting that Chris talks about his biggest influence being in the construction side of it versus the architectural side in the beginning. And, yeah, I and saw you being, nodding your head quite oh, aggressively. I, I'm going nuts with Chris because working for Pete back then, uh, w when you're building it, that's when you learn the most. When you're thinking about it, uh, somebody has to go build it. And Chris was spot on when he said, uh, I learned the most, uh, Bob Steele being a big influence to him. I, somebody's got to build these things. And it was cool to hear Chris talk about the building side of it versus just you know, watching people build it for you. Right. And, and then as my career developed, you know, uh, when Asia boomed in the late eighties and the early nineties, I moved to Hong Kong and we're building golf courses in the middle of, uh, Thailand. I mean, nobody knows how to build a golf course. Thank goodness. I had spent that time with Wadsworth, you know, and, and we could work with them and we figured out, you know, coconut husk, you know, would work as, as peat moss. And then you, you know, I'd have to get on the machinery myself and get a shaper over there or sometimes too, but I'd still floated all my own greens, had to show the guys how to build greens, you know, how to lay tile. Uh, you know, so without that experience, uh, I had with Wadsworth, I'd never be able to do that. And all that just makes me, I think, you know, better architect. And even today, I mean, this morning I was out at PGA national with a shovel with the, the guys were redoing the bunkers there you know what? No, this is what I meant. You know, you get a shovel and you shovel and lower something, throw the dirt here, build it up. And, you know, that's all part of it. And that's the fun part of it. Derek, you see, Chris doesn't have the drawing in his hand, pointing the finger. He's got the shovel yeah. scraping off two tenths of an inch. This is how you do it. He, yep. he doesn't show up on a work site in loafers. He's got his muddy boots on. I don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. so, That's the fun part of it. Yeah. You know, so th this is an interesting period in golf design is, is when you're getting into it in the, in the mid and late eighties. 
And obviously Jack Nicholas is, is the preeminent name, not just in golf design, but in, in golf period. I mean, did, did you, what was your thinking when you got the chance to work with Nicholas design? I mean, you really just put it no, no other better ways. I mean, you shot right to the top. I mean, you were hired by the number one company in the world. No, it's just pure dumb luck. I, I mean, my, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas and my four ball partner, his old roommate in junior college was Scott Miller. And Scott Miller was a, is from Augusta, Kansas, which is yeah, 10, 15 miles from Wichita. And Mitch kept telling me, man, you gotta, you gotta talk to Scott, you know, when you graduate, you know, and he tells me what Scott does. And I'm thinking to myself, no, 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 that's too good to be true. That's too much fun. I, I had no idea there was jobs like that, but, uh, you know, Mitch put me in contact with Scott when I graduated with my turf degree from Iowa state, you know, uh, that's, you know, in the, in 84, we, Jack had a bunch of work. Valhalla was starting, um, and Country Club of Louisiana was starting. I know we had some other stuff. I, I just can't recall off the top of my head. So they were hiring people, and I was just so fortunate to get hired. And you know what, Derek? When I think about how fortunate I was, I didn't even know who Pete Dye was, and yet my whole career evolved from, from just being a shaper, not just being, I take that back, being a shaper for Pete Dye, it was dumb luck like for me as it was for Chris. And yet, did Chris know that he was going to go around the world with Jack? Probably didn't, but yet took advantage of every situation that was given him. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it's I'm just so fortunate. I remember my daddy's like, okay, you do this for a couple of years and you need to go back and, you know, be a superintendent or, you know, get your, get a, become a civil engineer. Uh, but, you know, it just... You work hard, the jobs kept coming, and you know, uh, one thing leads to another. It's it's been great. As a as a fairly young man, when you enter this company and you meet Nicholas for the first time, how did you feel? Were you awestruck? Was he oh, totally, absolutely? It's a big company, and he probably. I'm imagining he he doesn't know exactly who you are for a little while. You have to establish you know some credibility and some have some tenure before he says, "Oh, there's there's Chris. I remember seeing him." You know, uh, but I, I'm, I'm just a year older than Jackie, you know, and so basically Jackie and I are the same age. And, you know, so Jack, you know, immediately Jack's so good with, you know, young people, you know, he I think he knows he's an intimidating force. I think he, he uses that to his advantage when he needs to. But, you know, he's been like a, a second father to me as well. You know, he's very compassionate. And he really understands young people. So, uh yeah, it's been good. He's always been very patient with me. Mm -hmm. Derek, I think about those times of being around Pete Dye, myself, afraid to say anything. Chris, when was that first time that you felt that you could say something that would add to the design? Or did that never really uh, come to your mind? You just kind of let it help happen with shaping and field work and the stuff that you did? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really as a site coordinator. I, I, I think where it really where I so in '89 I moved to Hokkaido, Japan, uh, in that fall, and that was one of the hey Chris, I have good news and bad news. Good news is we're going to make you a designer. I'm like great. Bad news is you're moving to Japan. You know, so uh, I moved to Hokkaido, had a great time, and I, I just remember the first site visit with Jack and what he saw, he liked, and just as he's explaining things. 
uh, what he wants and just my feedback, you know, things just started, you know, you could tell in his eyes, like, okay, this kid's been paying attention, you know, and, and, you know, I think it's been pretty, you know, very comfortable ever since. I think about the first time I said something, uh, and I know Pete told me, uh, he probably paid attention to me just to make sure that I got back on the dozer because that's all he really wanted. Like, just get back on that dozer and build something. Did you really feel that Jack gave you that, that, that peace of mind that you were on your way or was it really the field work, the, the, the objects you gave him, greens, bunkers, tees, fairways, that really sold Chris Cochran to Jack Nicklaus? No, I, I, yeah, I, I think him seeing in the product and then figuring out how that, where that product came from, you know, it's like, well, did Chris do this or did the shapers do that? Yeah. And he sees the green details and he asks me questions about the pitches, and the elevation changes, and, you know, depth of bunkers and being able to answer those questions. You know, I think that gave him the confidence and, uh, you know, hopefully I, you know, to this day, I still follow through with all that information for him. Cause it's easy to deviate Derek. Uh, the minute, uh, uh, Things uh, outside influences come. Uh, the contractor can't go down two feet. Uh, there's a water level that's a problem. Uh, agronomically, you can't grow this kind of grass. So there's always these little curveballs thrown at you every day. And uh, somebody has to figure those out. And uh, Chris, you must have felt comfortable. Uh, maybe you didn't uh, being halfway around the world that a decision you made that day, that one day could reflect uh, years down the road. That must have bothered you. Yeah, you know, but, you know, I I'd had enough construction experience that I, I feel like I know what works and what doesn't work. Uh, it's always been my philosophy, too. I would much rather make a mistake, uh, you know, design wise, you know, when it's a signature job, you know, that I felt was the right decision. And Jack disagrees with it versus, oh, I, I didn't like that either, Jack, but I thought that's what you wanted. You know, so those are two two fundamentals that I've always stuck with, and, and it's always worked out for the best that way. So, Jim, let me let me ask you a question. Yeah, were you were you an were you an operator before you started working for Pete? Oh yeah, for sure. No, 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 no. I was ne I never. Uh, I was a teacher, Chris. I okay. taught high school drafting, but I couldn't get a job out of college. So my uh, father-in-law suggested I get a real job. I used to fight forest fires in the summertime. So Pete taught me, Pete and his son, Perry, they taught me how to uh, run a bulldozer. And then Pete would send me around to different golf courses and tell me to take a picture and come back and build it. And so I learned from the ground up. I remember Pete telling me to get off the tractor. He'd get on a box blade, Chris, and, and Pete would drag around this green on a box blade and he'd make a freaking mess. Excuse my French. It's just make a mess. And he said, that's what I want it to look like. So then I'd have to get on a bulldozer or a box blade and shape it and create it. And then he'd come back and edit it. So I would build something. He would edit it. I'd build it. And I was never afraid to change it. But I learned by being on a bulldozer shaping. Chris, I never played golf. Pete Dye didn't want me to play golf. He thought it would ruin my career. It would taint me as far as what I wanted to be. I was never in the golf business, didn't play golf. So I was a neophyte. And so I'm kind of an oddity when it comes to this. 
But by, by Pete giving me a chance to learn, as Jack gave you that chance, as other people gave you that chance, I took off with it. I became enamored with it. I fell in love with it. And that's why I'm here today. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, doing work, you know, as a side guy. And, you know, you run across other guys in the industry. And uh, we're doing Polly's Plantation. And just down the street was Debbie and I remember talking to, and it was completed. And I was talking to the superintendent. I'm like, who, who did the shaping? He's like, well, I did most of it. I'm like, really? You're a dozer operator? He's like, I wasn't. But Pete put me on a diet dozer because right. Pete always wanted a rookie or somebody who that's really right. didn't have any preconceived notions that's right. because that's how he could create all these interesting, unique looks. You know, and I, I, I thought that was very cool. So I, that's why I wanted to know from you, yes. you know, if that's, yes. that's how it came about. I, had, I didn't play golf. I didn't understand it. Uh, in fact, Jack and I used to have a lot of uh, 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 back and forth at Sabonic just because of my oddity. Right. <laughs> he used right. to kind of – one day, uh, Chris, he asked me, how many majors have you won, Jim? And I was like, uh, none, Jack. <laughs> so Pete, that was that banter. And you also – you mentioned something earlier, Pete, like that you didn't play golf. And right. I think that's something – that Jack does like, you know, so I, I played collegiate golf. I played at Wichita state and then I transferred and uh, played at Iowa state. And I, and Jack, I think, I mean, you work with Jim, Jim like yes. Jim's a wonderful player. Yes. And I think that's part of, you know, uh, you know, the guys that have been around the longest with Jack, you know, tend to be, you know, the, you know, good players yep. really understand the the game because that's how Jack designs. I mean, Jack is all about the golf course. And, and you saw him at Subonic. Oh, yeah. he, all he's doing is he's out there and he's imagining how to play the golf hole, uh, the different shots, and that's how he designs. Yeah. And, and, and that's his approach. And, it's, and I totally respected it because I would spend time with Chris Rule after Jack left yeah. and, and after Jim left. Another Jeff great Rule. player. Great Chris, player, too. Derek Duncan. Chris Rule is, is the site guy under Jim Light and Nicholas Golf Design. Chris Rule plays at Ohio State with one of the Nicholas's kids. And I'm like, this kid's a stick. He, we would go play to Sabonic, and Chris Rule would, I mean, go play in the National next door, and Chris Rule would hit it a mile. I'm like, this guy should be playing golf. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a wonderful player. Yeah, and so I, I appreciate that Chris had, it says, you know, Jack wanted guys who could play good golf, and Pete, who I started with, could care less if you played golf. What a diametric opposite uh, application to architecture. Right. right. Yeah. It just goes to show there's, you know, any number of ways to, to come up with, uh, you know, a good golf course, a good product. And that's the beautiful thing about golf course architecture, you know, is how different it is. You know, I, uh, you know, as you see what's being highly regarded now, uh, you know, as far as ratings go, what genres, uh, is, you know, is getting all the ratings versus what it used to be, you know? So, uh, I love that new stuff over here too, but I, I still like that stuff over here as well. I think yeah, most, you- yeah, I think most players feel the same way, Chris. I mean, we, we kind of get caught in, in tracks that we have to be on. We have to be in, in this camp or have to be in the other camp. But, um, right. I, I think the, if you ask the average golfer anywhere, if they'd rather play, you know, Muirfield village or, Sand Hills, I mean, they'd say both. Just as excited to play either one. Right, right. And I, I would say, Chris, you you must have been a perfect fit for for Jack Nicholas 
having the skills of an agronomist, uh, having the skills of a good player, uh, having the skills to be able to communicate. Did you ever think that you were not a good fit? Uh, you know, when you're, when you're first starting out in the business, you're doubting yourself so much, you know, so, you know, you're, you're, yeah, there's always that, but I think you do grow into it. But, you know, even today, as I, you know, I've been doing this 38 years now. I mean, you're, you're always pushing yourself and trying to get better and do things differently. Uh, you know, if you did everything the same way every time, I mean, geez, how boring is that? So, you know, I find myself constantly trying to push the envelope and do things differently, which brings down, you know. Uh, so, no, but I, I, I think I, I think it's been a good fit with Jack and, and uh, you know, it's, it, it's still fun. And, you know, people still, you know, want us to do work. Right. Because, yeah. Derek, I, there's a golf course in New Mexico called Las Campanas. Uh, Chris, were you involved with Las Campanas? No, no, but I've seen photos. I can yeah. tell you, Derek, that Las Campanas gets no love from anybody, probably because it's in New Mexico. But mm-hmm. the golf course and its strategies and the, and the fun factor there is unbelievable, yet nobody ever talks about that place. Uh, I understand that, that, that the environment is important. Uh, that, that beautiful High Plains Desert in Santa Fe, New Mexico is unbelievable. I just don't see that it gets the love that, that other places get. Chris, is there, is there a golf course that you've done that you feel doesn't get that same love that I would say Muirfield does? <laughs> now, there's a lot of them. I could go on and on. Uh, I mean, I think Castle Pines, for when it was done, is brilliant. I mean, you're from Colorado. You know how hard it is to build a yep. golf course in the mountains like that. And for that to fit as well as it does and have as much variety, I think that's, you know, you know, I think it needs some love. I think Valhalla is not a very pretty golf course, but wow, do they have great tournaments there and the great finishes there. It could use a little bit more love. Uh, you know, I, I'm so partial to Dismal River. You know, I really like Dismal River. I think it is so fun and, and uh, enjoyable to play. And it's, you know, you drive all that way and it's, you know, it's like nothing you, you've seen anywhere. So, uh, and there's, you know, with the wind, the way the wind blows, you know, the way it contains the golf ball around the greens. I, I really, I like Dismal. I, I wish it got a little more love. I, I you know, it's, it, they're not able to maintain it like it should be right now but uh even so I, I still think it plays great have you been back there lately you know it's probably been about five years and when i was there they had six people maintaining 36 holes yeah you know yep. but and they were doing a wonderful job but when you got that so few people there i've never ever seen any poa there ever and there was poa everywhere because they didn't have enough time to aerify and do the things they needed to do they just put out fertilizer and water and, and mowed it you know, but it, it still played very well. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I really like the uh, the white course there as well. I think were you involved with that one, Jim? No, I actually we we actually uh, interviewed for that job under the Renaissance Golf Design Banner. Uh, looked at both sites, looked at the site you were at, looked at the site down by the river. Uh, realized how hard it was to get there, how hard it was to do work. Realized that the kingdom of kingdom of golf courses was just down the river sand hills. And so yeah. you were competing with St. Andrews of America. It was right. going to be a tough deal. Uh, right. I saw the work after you were done. I took Ken nice 
and uh, uh, Jeff Sutherland from Abandoned Dunes Resort, two mm -hmm. superintendents. We went and played there. And so we got to experience your work. I can tell you the dunes are massive. The setting is beautiful. The stars are bright. But, man, is it hard to build golf courses in the sand hills of Nebraska. That must have been tough for you. It's so volatile. The weather is so volatile. I mean, I grew up in Kansas, but I've never seen a tornado on the touch the ground until you know, I worked in Nebraska. You can see them going across the plains. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just so volatile, you know, but the fescue does well there. You know, yeah. they don't ended up doing the, the second golf course there too. I asked if you've been involved because I thought they did such a great job doing, if we did it this way, they did it that way. Right. And, Two golf courses, you know, you, you know, the, you know, the sand hills and, oh, yeah. the oh, and yeah. how they work. So, you know, how dramatic the changes can be. Yes. And I, I thought they did a, a good job with a great job with the routing and just doing exactly the opposite of what we did. And yeah. it's still fun. It's still good golf. And, and I could, that's why the 36 holes there, man, I, I could retire there and play every day. Yeah. And see, Derek, you could see the love that we have for 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 the dismal rivers the 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 band of dunes resort where i got to work you can see the love that we have and it's a different appreciation than what derek duncan's get to that uh, gets to enjoy chris you mentioned you know your admiration for the the red course because it went a different direction than you uh, did at the white course when you were building the white course was there any effort on on Team Nicholas's part to look at Sand Hills and do something different than Sand Hills had already established? Yeah. Uh, so, all right. I get the colors reversed. Sorry about that. <laughs> we did the white course. You did the white so, course, right? So, we, when we were there, I remember touring the site and we, we, we drove around uh, where the red golf course is. And it's beautiful. We'd been down by the river and Jack was disappointed. He's like, you know, this is beautiful. But this could be Western Kansas. This could be the Dakotas. You know, I thought I thought we were going to see something special, you know. And then we go up over the hill. And he's like, oh, "Okay, that this is this is what I was looking for." So, uh, you know, so Jack fell in love with that site because it it, it is so unique. It's so special, I, you know. Uh, so that's the, the site we chose. As far as going to Sand Hills. Yeah, I played there the first year it opened. I mean, growing up in Kansas, uh, I just moved back from Asia, uh, living in Malaysia. And I remember going there with my parents and a buddy of mine, Bob Gibbons, who works with Tom Watson. We went out there and played, and that was the first year where they had all the desiccation and it wasn't very good. And I was just blown away. I couldn't believe how cool that was. And I've been back since. And I've been a, used to be a member at Prairie Dudes. So, you know, I, I love the Sandhills and Sandhills golf. And I love, uh, you know, Sandhills, but that's not Jack. Jack's not going to go and look at somebody else's work at that point in time. You know, we flew over it in a helicopter. He asked me what it was like, but no, he never, that's not him. He's not going to go look at that. I've never known him to do anything like that until you guys were doing Subonic and Coor Crenshaw were doing Friar's Head at the same time. And, you know, he took us all over there to look at that as well. And that's kind of the that. first time, that's kind of the first time. So what would that have been? The mid 2000s? 2006, 2007. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time that, you know, one of your questions is how has the company evolved? That's the first time I've seen Jack really take the time and like, well, let's go see what other people 
are doing. Because I know in Jack's mind, he's like, well, I don't, I don't need to do that. I, I know I do the best work in, you know, whether he's right or wrong, but that's Jack's mentality. Yeah. And I can so, tell you, Derek, that land that the, the, when you go over the hill, he talks about a dismal river away from dismal river. It is, it's like golf in the kingdom. It's, yeah. it's big, it's, it's bold, it's beautiful. That valley where the windmill is, that whole 14, 15, 16, 17, you could stay in there forever. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see why you would fall in love with that. Uh, but again, Derek, you can go and lay out 500 holes. Eventually, you got to build something. And what they came up with the Dismal River was the the dramatic, the valley, and the return home. Uh, pretty impressive dunes. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, it, is, it turned out so, to be dramatically different in a the way you approach it playing than Sandhills because Sandhills is gently laid over the ground. You know, they're open entrances to all the greens. Um, there are forced carries. You have to have those, but, uh, but, but the Nicholas course is quite dramatic. I mean, you're playing right over the top of dunes. You have blind shots. You have um, a, a lot of contour that probably, I don't know if Nicholas design had ever built greens with that much contour and randomness to them before i mean it's really a it's a fun course to play because it embraces that wildness head-on it doesn't try to snake around it and 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 provide um a lot of safety sandhills is a pretty tough place to play too but but you know there are certain holes on on the white course that are just right at the topography in a in a and it's i think it's an enjoyable golf course because of that thank you and if I, if I had the opportunity to go back and work on it, I would have moved a little bit more dirt. I think we were so obsessed with not moving any dirt, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, the strategy was, it's almost there, but it just isn't quite there. If we would have gone ahead and let the dozer operator shove it a little bit more, you know, like a good example is the 17th hole. You come out over the bunkers on the right. You have a, a more of an opening and a view into that, that green. But that was an existing dune in front of it, protecting the front left. In hindsight, I just wish I would, we would have cut it maybe 10 yards, 30 feet to the left, and, and I think the strategy would have worked better. Uh, but I remember you know, going around uh, you know, with the shaper that we had, and we would – kind of sketch out what are the contours here on the grains okay this is what i want we just got to tone that down and try to get it in percentages that would work you know so it was so fun it was such a fun job you you had to be uh you had to be uh wondering to yourself the difference between valhalla uh, and and castle pines versus uh the dismal river project you must have been treading around very lightly knowing that you couldn't put it back if you started to erase it. Uh, so I could sense that, that apprehension. But at, at Valhalla, uh, I've, I've played all the golf courses that you said that, that need more love, that you wished had more love. Valhalla, Castle Pines. Uh, I live down the street from Castle Pines. But you still had to be apprehensive at the Dismal River, afraid to make that move because, as I said, you can't put it back. Sure. I, I, absolutely. And we were just so in the mindset was, you know, what would a Donald Ross have done here? You know, you know, if he, you know, and he doesn't have any excavators, he doesn't have any bullets or he doesn't have anything. And half his mules are sick. You know, what would he do? You know, so that was kind of our mindset that we, we, we ran with. And it was interesting too. Like, uh, I mean, we were well over halfway done 
and we still didn't know how we were going to get from 11 to 17. <laughs> I, I mean, we had so many different routes and I don't know why it came over 11 green and we looked to the right. And I, and I think 12 is probably the most natural tee shot out there. Uh, and I don't know. I never looked right. Jack came out and he looked that way. And he's like, well, why don't we put the hole there? And boom, it just kind of clicked. The only downside was we got stuck with 16. And 16 was the only hole we really had to blow, blast through a dune to get the green in there and get it to work. Would you do it again, Chris? Would you, have, yeah. would you like to have the chance to do it again in big dunes? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned a lot there. I, I remember uh, playing the Robert Trent Jones Jr. course, the National in Australia. And gorgeous site, big dunes, et cetera. And it, it was so hard. It was such a difficult golf course. The shots were so difficult, but the greens were so difficult. And I remember telling myself, if I ever get in a situation like this, we got to have, you got to have one or the other. You got to have easy shots with tough greens, or you got to have tough shots with easy greens. And at Dismal, I think we, we tried to make the shots not quite so hard, and those are really tough greens. But I would probably try to, if I got the opportunity, I would probably tone the greens down a little bit. You and know, the, the other thing with that bent, they golly, you know, the bit gets so fast. Oh, you know, you know, it gets so fast. It's you know, you so just get, dry and so you know, hot and so yeah. arid and yeah. windy and the ball's rolling out. It's like, God, you know, you just can't anticipate that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that was my question that I was, I wanted to ask you in, in the go-to moment uh, when you're, when you're walking and, 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 and laying these things out, do you think that you solve problems with, with, uh, and I say problems in the routing, do you solve them with uh, artistic greens, artistic bunkers? Uh, does the routing, uh, play out the, the main factor in, in Chris Crocker and, and the way he talks with Jack or, or is it the artistic, the shot values, the, how the player is going to play it? You know, with Jack, it's all about the shot values, you know, uh, you know, early on, Jack wasn't much of an artist. I mean, Pete's a wonderful artist. I mean, Pete was a great artist in a wacky kind of way. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's, that was never Jack in the beginning. Since then, he, he has, you know, become more and more of an artist. And therefore, that's something we start to think about a lot more. Uh, but with Jack, it was always just shot value. Get the bunker in the right place. Get in the right depths. You know, make sure I can see that. You know, and, and that's how we navigated ourselves around the golf course. It was just purely how you play, play the game and how the golf ball is going to react. And it's really only been, a, you know, maybe... You know, probably, I, God, time flies, but, you know, kind of when he stopped playing senior golf that he, you know, has really gotten so much more into the art of it. Yeah, Chris, I, that's interesting you say that because that was I was going to ask about that. It seems like there is a very clear division between the early Nicholas courses, I'll say early using, you know, 70s, 80s, and, and kind of through the 90s, uh, which, and I think, they're tactical golf courses, which kind of is what you're saying. You know, he's thinking about how to play the shots, how to position bunkers in relation to the shots to set up the next shot, etc. And then it becomes the courses become more. Uh, I'll use the word experiential as as in addition to tactical still, but experiential in, in that you're seeing um, a, a, almost a more satisfying 
uh, a template of, of visions and golf features and, and compositions. The bunkering changes. Uh, it becomes a little more jazzy and a little bit more elaborate when, on, when the site calls for it. There's a little more space in the fairways. It becomes probably a little more player friendly. But you get these really beautiful golf courses that are are little that they seemed different. Basically, in the last I would say around 2000 is when I noticed it. Then the courses before that. So I was going to ask you: Is there a, were there was there a, a a noticeable shift as it was happening, um, project to project that you noticed, or 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 did it just? kind of evolve to the point where you look back and say, oh, we're kind of doing this different style now. Well, I could go on and on. I, I could talk about the history and the, the styles, but I will say the most dramatic change to me was the Bears Club in Jupiter, Florida, because Jack, it's a wonderful golf course. It's a really hard golf course, but it's a very pretty golf course. But Jack did so many things there. And I'm like, Jack, you never let me do this stuff. Why, why, why are you doing it now? And his reply is, Chris, I was here every day, you know, so we're skating on thin ice with these things that I'm doing here as, you know, we're doing signature work somewhere else. And I'm only making six visits or 10 visits or whatever, you know, I, I, we don't have that. He, did, he wasn't comfortable with the margin for error you know, that, that could happen. He, he didn't want to take that chance because, you know, he's not there to make sure it works properly. So there's a so, level of execution that he knew that the company could deliver based right. on his and availability. He, yeah, absolutely. He knew he, we could do this and it would always work. And it wasn't until he did the Bears Club and he took all those chances and it worked. And then we saw it. It's like, oh, we can do that now? Well, then we're going to do that. And I, and I think that was really the, uh, the starting point where art really became a bigger, bigger part of our uh, design work. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, hey, the other thing, too, another one that gets no love is Shoal Creek. I love Shoal Creek. I haven't seen it since they redid it. I, I know there's some pretty big changes, I, 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 but I love Shoal Creek because knowing Jack going there and that was his first golf course that he had ever done in America with his own company. And you could just see how his mind worked as the best player, the number one player in golf at that time, you know? Uh, and I, I just thought it was just such a, a wonderful golf course, not necessarily executed properly to where you could read the strategy and understand quite what he's doing. And, you know, the way he set in bunkers and some greens would be a, a bit awkward, you know, there was a, an easier, more natural way to do it. Uh, so I, I hope in the renovation, that's what they did, because that, that, that's a great golf course. And, and that's what, Jim, you know, that that's 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 your experience that, that, you know, as you do it more and more, you learn how to execute better. You know, knowing where you want the bunkers and how to play, you know, that, that's not that hard. Trying to take a crap piece of property or a dead flat piece of property or even a great property and not screw it up and pull all this stuff. You know, that that's where all the experience, you know, comes in. Derek, I'm telling you, there's like a hundred levels to the layering of a golf course and its architecture. Yep. And some people get 10% of it. Some people get 30%. I don't know that anybody gets everything of it. And when Chris walks around the Jack Nicholas designs and I walk around the designs that I've been involved with, there's a hundred thousand things that we gave you. 
and you don't even get to experience all of it. So it's hard for me to pe- to to see people judge a golf course with one visit, <laughs> yeah. one visit. And Chris put way more time in that than just having you make one visit and do a judgment. Yeah, and and you learn process too. I remember Chris Rule, you know, when he was doing Sabonic with you guys, he's like, man, these guys, Jim and the Shapers are driving me crazy. They only <laughs> they only do stuff halfway. They half shape the hole and then they leave and they go somewhere else. And I'm like, where? Oh, I want you guys finish it off. Well, I'm just not feeling it. You know, I'm not quite sure how to do it. But then they come back a few weeks later and tinker with it. And, you know, how could you do that and stay on budget, et cetera? But as if I'm on a job and I'm not being pressured by a contractor, you know, hey, he's way over here. He's not ready for that. You know, I'll do the same thing. I didn't used to. But, you know, that's something I learned, you know, later on in life, you know, and, and you guys have been doing it all along. And, and what a great way to be able to develop a golf hole. And, Chris, I learned that from Pete. He's, he would always put his hand on my shoulder and say, let's play with it a while. Yeah. So how long was a while? <laughs> right. right. And that's what taught me how to just keep letting it evolve until you finally say, okay, we're done. Let's yeah. play with it a while. I'll never forget that, Derek. Chris pointed it out exactly right now. Now that Chris has a chance to let uh, play with the designs, not pressured by owner, contractor, things get better. Yeah. yeah. Chris, is that, is that what you're talking about maybe with Shoal Creek? If, if you could go back in time and apply this approach that you've learned now and, and gained respect for that ability to just kind of let things lie, they would have maybe the the features would have been more harmonious with the environment around them. Right. Exactly. And when we, when we redid Sherwood, you know, uh, in thousand Oaks, it's a wonderful golf course. It's so quaint and enchanting, et cetera. And when we were redoing it, they had real bad agronomic issues. So they had to spend a bunch of money on irrigation, sand capping, grass types, et cetera. But I, I thought to myself, man, we're, we're, and telling Jack, we're not going to be doing any design changes here. You know, it's just a matter of getting it to work. But once we got into it, and it was all dirt and you had the you had the bulldozers there and you could start working on it to present the strategy better. You know, that, that's what I'm talking about. Things. It, it was a wonderful enchanting golf course to begin with. But I think it's even so much more now because, you know, we got the redo and, and we learn more just how to present features. Mm mm-hmm. And, and present a golf hole, whether it's the angle of a bunker, uh, the angle of a green, a grass line, you know, what a sand line, you know, all those things. It just seems like the the models are 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 on different ends of the spectrum. You know, when you're Nicholas Design, and especially in the '80s and really the '90s, when I, I, maybe you could tell me how many projects at a time the company had going on around the world. There's yeah. just you just don't have the ability or the luxury to go slow. I mean, you've got it. You've got to hit deadlines. You've got you've got um, you've got hierarchies of of, of uh, companies and and trades coming in doing you know irrigation, grassing, you know grading, all those all these things that and they're all dependent on one another and they're stacked. And you've got the you know you're far flung, and then you have somebody like the way Jim was brought up working like with Pete Dye and, and some of the other people and they're doing one or two, maybe three projects at a time. And it's just, they're just they, by necessity, they're two different ways to operate. Um, I'm curious to know 
if if you would have liked to have a little more experience doing it the other way that we've been talking about and just being able to 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 be interpretive you know to improvise on projects to not uh have to you know look at look at blueprints and execute these i, I know i'm generalizing very very uh you know sky high about what it actually takes as we've been talking about but does, would, would that style of design have appealed to you at some point in your career uh, it's becoming more and more appealing as travel becomes more and more brutal, et cetera. Sure, that, that, that's such a, a fun way of doing it. Uh, but, okay. okay. The clients who hired us at that time, if they wanted it done the other way, then they would hire another architect. You know, so they, they hired us because they knew, uh, you know, that they had a budget. They had a purpose for the golf course. They had a timeline and they knew that they could hire us. We could get go in there, build them a, a good golf course that would sell memberships or sell homes, whatever it might be. Uh, and that's what they were looking for, you know? Uh, and when we were busy doing that kind of stuff, yeah, I, I knew no other way. So it was fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. And uh, I remember grassing nine golf courses one year, you know, that's just what we did. <laughs> you know, I know, I know. And in hindsight, you know, but then the great recession hit, things slowed down. Uh, we did away with the site coordinators. So we didn't have any, we hadn't had a site coordinator in over 15 years. Therefore the designers had to spend more time in the field doing the work. You know, before we had the site coordinators, we could rely on them. And yeah, that was new and different. And I like that, you know, but it took a while to get up to that. And, and, and I love that. And, you know, we're, we're getting busy again. Uh, we might start bringing the, the site coordinators on again. Uh, but again, it, it still comes back to our client base, you know, what they're looking for and, and, and what they want. Uh, you know, so I think that I hope I answered your yeah, question. Have, have you noticed, uh, in the last 10 years that the clients that are interested in hiring Nicholas design have, has the profile of that client changed or is it, it has been a consistent type of developer through your tenure? Well, now that, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely changed because the, uh, you know, we're the leader of uh, residential golf, you know, I mean the brand and Jack's name and the product, you know, that that's what was important uh, to our clients. And, and that's, the majority of what our work is that market, although it's coming back now, you know, went away for, you know, 10, 15 years, you know, so we, we ended up with, with different clients. Uh, a lot of our work has just been renovation work of what, uh, you know, of older work that we did do, which has been fascinating in itself too. I, I mentioned a little bit about Sherwood where they had agronomic issues. What we're finding too is, you know, you're building a golf course 20 years ago to sell memberships, to sell homes, et cetera. So there's a lot of bells and whistles, jazz with that, that helps sell that. But now that the members own it, they're like, well, geez, we don't want to pay for all that. <laughs> you know? So we're going back in and simplifying the golf courses where they're more affordable and maintainable for the, uh, uh, for the members, you know, and that that's in itself, that's been an interesting challenge as well, you know, because you had all this eye candy and you're taking away that eye candy, but you still want it to be a fun, great golf course. And, and that's 
not only fun to play, but also fun to look at. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been an interesting challenge. If you don't mind me asking, and, and I always felt this, uh, uh, everybody's a collaborator, Chris, as you know. Shapers are collaborators. The contractor who has an opinion is a, is a collaborator. The owner is a collaborator. Uh, Jack and you are, are both intertwined. Was it more difficult working with collaborations with Palmer, with Player, with uh, uh, Tony Jacklin at the time? Uh, were those collaborations more difficult or easier because you just had more ideas? They're easy. They're fun. You know, Jack, Jack is, um, he's, you know, he's always talked about it and it's instilled into us. I mean, it's, it's a team effort and it all works as long as you agree upon a quarterback. It goes awry when you don't have a quarterback and everybody thinks they're the quarterback and they're at the final say, as long as everybody knows who makes the final call, it, it works out great. You know, so when we, we, when we did concession, you know, uh, when Tony was there at every site visit that Jack made and they, yeah. you know, Jack bounced ideas off of him and you yeah. want to do A or B, and, you know, it worked out good. Same with Palmer. Did you have a chance to work with Yeah, you know, I didn't work on the King and the Bear. Okay. You know, so I, I, I don't know about that. Since then, uh, you know, we've done some projects with John Sanford, who's a local yep. architect, yep. Uh, and John's you know, has been a, a project manager role, but Jack, I mean, his kids went to high school and school with Jack's grandkids. So they have a great relationship, uh, but it's great to have another set of eyes. Like, Hey, did you, do you think about this? Or I saw this over here. You got to check that out. And it works great, you know, and then we're doing this new project Panther national with Justin Thomas yeah. uh, and Justin's new to it, but he has a sincere interest in it. Uh, so, you know, he's he's like, I, these are some thoughts. These are the things that I like. I, you know, and we're just there to, to help him execute his thoughts, you know, along with Jack's. Has that started yet? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a favor? Uh, you don't you could say yes or no or, or say decline. Would you mind if I walked around with you on that site? Sure. Yeah. I'd, so love, we I'd have, love to do that. Yeah. So we have the the part three course is shaped now. Uh, the contractor won't be on site. We got we got a big dirt mover there now, yeah. and I got a shaper there, uh, so we got the the par three shaped up. We're moving almost a million and a half yards. Yep, yep. You know, so it's slow going, but you know, we got probably half the back nine moved. We got the yep. biggest slam for it put in, but sure, I'd love to show you around anytime. I would love I would love to do that. I'd like I I am always learning. I tell this to Derek all the time. I'm always learning. I like uh, interactions. I like be I like hanging around with Bill Coor on his sites. I've visited other sites. That would be fun for me uh, to be around uh, you and watch how you uh, act and react. Uh, Derek, it's all a part about building the golf course. The design is cool, but having it unfold, uh, all of the ideas unfold, that's even more uh, entertaining for me. I'd sure like to see that process. Yeah, good. I'd love to have you. You're doing Lob Lolly, right? Yes, that's summer. correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, correct. yeah, come on by. Because we'll be, we're under construction. We'll be under construction until probably next May. Try to grass it out next May. So anytime. Derek, see how lucky I am. I just get to, I get to hang out and see all this action and, and, and watch it unfold. And yet, and yet, in the end, when, when, it, when the grand opening is, 
Nobody will ever know all the trials and tribulations that went in with this design. Maybe somebody will care, but those are the parts that I like, the evolution of the golf course. Maybe, Chris, I'll ask you a couple questions, maybe just as we start to wind this down, and this is a way to maybe get you to comment on on some interesting courses that uh, you've been involved with. When you think of of yourself, you can answer for yourself personally or uh, as the senior design associate for Nicholas Design. When you think of what is a good golf site for you and your company and what you'd like to work on, and this may be different than what Bill Coor considers a great golf site, is it something like, what is a great golf site? Is it it a May River site? Is it a... Is it Mayakama or Mayakama? Mayakama, my something like that, or is it is it is it Dismal River? Is that a great site for you, or is it uh, Kivira or something? You know, like what? How would you talk about those sites? (laughs) Kivira is by far the hardest thing I've ever had to work on. That's crazy how hard that was. Uh, I I, I love it when the land just tells me what to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dismal was fun. It it told you what to do. I'm very proud of what we did at Florida State, redoing the golf course there. Uh, it doesn't sound like a very sexy site. It's just kind of a big dome, there's, but there's 85 feet of elevation change on it, big, beautiful trees. Uh, we used a lot of the old corridors, but it, it was, you know, putting together the strategy there uh, was just so easy. It just told you what to do, you know? So I, I, I like a, a site with enough to, topography to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I you know, Panther National is the exact opposite. I mean, well, I'll, I take it back. It was a great site because it's the only site I, I've ever heard of in South Florida where there's zero environmental restrictions. It was all just cow pasture. There's no wetlands. There's no gopher tortoise, you know, no power lines. I don't have anything. And we, we just got to make up whatever we want, wanted to do. I like those sites too. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Kavira Middle. Uh, I mean, that is, that is a <sighs> sensational golf course. And it's it's unique because I think the public would say that it's one of the most exciting golf courses in the world to play, but you said it's a difficult site. It's a, it was, it's, it's strung out all over the place, you know? So it, I mean, you have these two different things. You have these incredible holes that are on these cliffs and through the desert and, and then this, this journey that you have to go on to, to get to them. Right. You know, and I, I say it may not be the greatest golf course in the world, but I tell you what, it's one of the greatest golf experiences you would ever have. I mean, I, I forget the artist who did those crazy calendars, you know, yep. where it hit off Niagara Falls. I mean, that's Quivira for 18 <laughs> goals. Uh, but, you know, the first hole had the water line going down it. The second hole, the wash coming through, which is so tough getting around that. The third, and again, I may have the numbering wrong because I keep changing the numbering. The three, the third hole is uh, drivable four, but to get it to work, it opened up the pretty ordinary housing in the distance. You know, the fourth hole coming down the hill, again, the Arroyo, we had to reroute it around the back of the hole so the, the hazard's on the outside of the dog leg, but we didn't want it really in play. And it just, it went on and on and on. And then as you get the holes on the cliff, I remember the first time I went there, I'm like, over with the contractor. I'm like, you sure you can put a golf hole in there? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do this. I'm like, okay, I I have no idea how you're going to do it. Because even on paper, I'm really struggling to get this thing to work. Um, But they got it to work, you know. But every hole, and then when you get on the the back nine and you get in the dunes where they film the the movie Troy, 
I mean, the wind just blows. So you'd shake something and you come back after lunch and it was totally gone because it would blow. So we had to, you know, first time ever, I'm like, as soon as you shape it, put in the irrigation grass. And if we got to rip out some irrigation and rip out some turf to, to get something to, if that didn't work properly, that's what you got to do because it's just such a crazy site. So that's a challenge in itself, you know? So the owner thinks it looks great. Jeez, we, I just spent all this money on irrigation and grass and you're telling me I got to rip some of it out. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, that's part of the, what needs to happen. And, you know, I think they're going back. Some of the stuff we wanted to change, they were never really wanted to do, but it sounds like now that they're starting a second course there, that they're going to go back and fix some of the, the things that, you know, I told them, you guys grass, you have to do that. Otherwise it would all blow away. And, it, and we got burned on it design wise a couple of times, at least now they're going to come back and start addressing that, you know, but that that's, that's the cool thing about a golf course architecture too. You make up all this stuff as you go. There's nobody can tell you how to do this. This isn't in a book, you know, uh, Every site you go to and every hole and situation can be something you've never, ever seen or heard of or seen anywhere else on a golf course. You know, some, some golf courses, oh, yeah, I've done that a million times. I understand that. But there's always something out there that, you know, it, it's always a puzzle. And that, that's fun. I like that. Jim and I were talking before earlier about the concept of um, McKinsey. He read a, a quote from McKinsey about, the importance of uh, back in that day hiring an architect who is a professional and an expert, and it's inter- and we talked about the concept of architect as expert, and it's funny to hear you talk kind of come back to that full circle and say, even even we as the experts who've done this, you know, hundreds of times, it, there's no perfection in this art. It's it's oh, always yeah. a moving target. It's always every site and every project is completely different than the last. Absolutely. Something new is going to come up. Yeah, and that leads that leads me into my question. We all have favorites. I have my favorites that I want to go back to, golden age and new. Do you have, Chris, some of your favorites that you want to keep going back to? You mentioned you used to be a member of Prairie Dunes. Is that some place that you go back to that rekindles that spirit? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, American Dunes as well. I mean, that, that was such a fun project, and it's so interesting and. We had to make that up on the fly and it turned out so well, but there's things there you'd like to go back and tweak. And I, I think everything, I, I, I don't, I don't think anybody's ever done a golf course where they wouldn't want to go back and tweak something or just something or move something over there or something like that, you know, but uh, the difference between architecture now and the golden age too. I mean, God, they had such a, choice of sites they had all these great sites they had no restrictions as far as the environment or anything like that they could just do whatever they wanted to do that's right and that's why they're so unique you know we don't have that or it's so rare that we ever get a site like that agreed agreed i'll tell you my favorite one of my favorite jack nicholas's stories you've you have a million more than i do but i went and picked him up at the national golf links of america and we drove out of the entrance of the national and he made me stop the car and he rolled down the window and he said, Jim, why do you like that golf course? And he pointed at the National Golf Links of America. And he said, why do you like that golf course so much? And so I said, Jack, uh, because nobody will ever build, will have the chance to build 
that one again. And that is so true that no, you couldn't build the National Golf Links of America again that way. And so the restrictions that are today were not back then. And that's why there'll never be another national. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did he have, did he have an opinion of the national gym that you were aware of, or was oh, he just yeah. quizzing you? <laughs> no, no, he he had an opinion. He said because uh, I asked him, I said, "What's your what's your what's a couple of your favorite golf courses?" He loved Muirfield. He wanted me to go see Muirfield. He thought that was one of his favorites. He always thought that St Andrews was a special place in his heart. And I don't know if it's if this is the player Jack or the artist Jack. I don't know. Uh, he always talked about Pebble Beach. He talked about Sciota, uh, the old Sciota. Yeah. So Jack had his favorites, but he he questioned me, and it was a fun banter for a year. Uh, he questioned why I love the National so much, uh, because uh, as I said, you would never build another one like it. And Chris brought it up exactly: the golden age versus today. The things that you can do now that you that you couldn't do back then, or you vice versa. What a difference in, in, in what we get to do. And Chris was spot on in that observation. Well, Chris, thanks for sharing all that with us. We got a little peek inside of your life in design and the, the way the company works. And you've, like I said before, you've been to some some incredible places and had some incredible opportunities incredible. that uh, is pretty unique in this business. So we appreciate having you on. No, this has been fun. Yeah, hopefully we can do it again. Chris, will we ever see a Chris Cochran design golf course that we can uh, we can argue about and, and banter about? Uh, yeah, I, we can do it already. I mean, it, it, with a, a Nicholas design, you know, uh, <laughs> you know. So if it's a Nicholas design and doesn't involve Jack, then yeah, the the you know myself or Chad or whoever the, the design associate in the office, you know, that that's what it is. Got you it. Know? Uh, but as far as putting my own name. I, I've always enjoyed it here because I never wanted to chase money. I never wanted to chase clients. All I wanted to do was design golf courses and try to get better at my craft. And that's what the company's allowed me to do. Uh, I turned 62 this year. Yeah. Who knows somewhere down the road, maybe I'll, you know, go do that. But for now I'm, I'm not planning on it. That's great. Thank <laughs> but you. I, I tell you what, I do have the utmost respect for the guys who aren't Jack, who are very successful architects and have built a business and done uh, work on their own and has been well-received. I, I have the utmost admiration for those guys for not only being such good architects, but business-savvy businessmen, you know? Cool. So it's, yeah, they're, it's all, all my admiration of those guys. That's pretty cool, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Okay. That's cool. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Likewise, Chris. Admiration for you as well. Thank you for joining Agreed. us. I appreciate it. All right. I agree. Thank All you. Right. Well, Jim, I think we learned something new today. Um, I, and, you know, Chris Cochran is a name that I've heard since I've followed golf course architecture. He just always uh, listed as an associate, a, a design associate, senior design associate. Oh, you know, his involvement in the process of, of how the Nicholas courses are built is is well known. But beyond that, I'm not sure I really knew what his role was, what um, 
his involvement was what you know was he in the office at a computer like you know making making plans and um working working on drafts uh no it, we found out something uh, that we didn't know about uh Cochran today and that was he's a dirt guy i mean he in his blood he is in the field he is yeah. doing the field work he is uh on the ground he's communicating with crews he's got mud on his boots He's he was floating his own greens, you know, when necessary. He can work the equipment. I mean, this is right up your alley. This is, you know, you and you and Chris Cochran are simpatico. I mean, and I, I won't speak for you, but I wasn't sure that there was room in a in a in a massive corporate company like Nicholas Design for um, a a real man of the earth and a guy who just wants wants to get out there and fiddle with things like Chris Cochran. But but there yeah. is. Yeah, I, I can tell you, uh, Derek, uh, uh, Chris Cochran, not, not that he cares, but he became closer <laughs> to my heart because um, he, he, he said he, he got laid off and he went back to work for Wadsworth Construction. Yep. And he ran scrapers and dozers and equipment. And he learned how to build the golf course and realized that that was the most important thing for him to learn uh, and that – uh, his playing abilities and his turf agronomy was going to help him later on, but he had to learn how to build the golf course. And uh, I'm not saying that we're now blood brothers. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not, not yet, but a couple know, tours just, around Panther national. Oh, and we'll oh see. yeah. You know, if, 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 because I was brought up that way, Derek, you know what I'm, I've said it for years. Mm-hmm. Pete died putting his hand on my shoulder. Let's play with it a while. Get on the dozer, shape something for me. That's not what I want. Now hold the phone. Uh, he gets on his box blade and scrapes it around. Pete does. So that's how I learned. And when I listened to Chris Cochran talking about shovel loads, you know, taking shovels and, and taking a shovel away and saying, this is what I want. Those are the people that I that I tend to lean towards because they understand the implementation of the design, the art part of it, of the construction part of it. And I I honestly didn't have a sense that that Chris was of that of that liking. And he said today uh, several times over, if I could do it again, I might do this or I might do that. And he talked about the construction part of it. But yet he said Nicholas liked him, uh, a good player. Uh, Chris Rule, who I worked at uh, at Sabonic, good player. Jim Light, good player. Jack liked guys that were good players around him. But Chris was also a dirt guy, as you professed. Yeah, and it, it brought me back to you know I think you know the the, the portfolio that, that that Nicholas has has put out is um, you know it's it's undeniable. It, it's huge. It, you know is every course great is every course lovable is every course you know excellent no but there are some fantastic golf courses in it more than you know a, a career's worth for most people uh in that portfolio four times over and the good golf courses are no different than any golf good good, good golf course and they're good because they get the details right they yeah. get down to what dave axon called not four feet down to four inches and it's those okay. that level of detail that chris was talking about yeah. Move, moving lines around, moving sand around, like st- stressing grassing lines, those kind of things. If you have somebody on the ground on site who's giving his heart and soul into it and cares that much about it, like like a Chris Cochran does at the projects that he's worked on, you're going to get a good product ultimately. Right, right. 
And I can, I can tell you that uh, is Chris Cochran live at Pinehurst like Dave Axland did? I don't know. But I know that Dave Axland lived at Pinehurst. He lived at, uh, at, at Talking Stick in, in Arizona. Uh, he was up at uh, Sand Hills uh, living uh, in, in, a, in a, uh, a log cabin. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> living and doing the work. So when you breathe, live and breathe the dirt part of it, it's the details that go into it that make it different. And, and when people talk about floating their own greens or shaping their own work or uh, Dave Axon, four feet, four inches, I'll never forget that for as long as I live. That's the people that make these things happen. And the Jack Nicholas design needed the Chris Cochran's of the world to implement those ideas, whether it was in Singapore or Ohio, Hokkaido, Japan. You know, Chris Cochran was there. Jim Light was there. Chris Rule was there. The names, the names go on and on. Bob Cup, Jay Moore, they, they go on and on. Jack surrounded him with, himself with talented people. Pete Dye surrounded himself with talented people. Bill Coor surrounds himself with talented people. Chris was just a snapshot of those talented people. And just, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out when you're, t- you're talking about uh, somebody like a Dave Axland, you know, committing himself and living on site. You could speak for yourself at Pacific Dunes, the time mm-hmm. that you put in there. So oh, yeah. you know what that's Thank like. You. But it's, what we're it's ta- hard. Yes. It's hard. Yes. But, and that's sort of, it takes that kind of commitment from the team members to make a, yep. a, a to make a Pacific Dunes or, or to make some of the Nicholas company portfolios. Agreed. Um, we're talking about a couple different things here. We're talking about the foundation of the golf course, the field work that goes into it, all the details that nobody ever sees. You talked, you talked about it that one level down, 10 levels down, a hundred levels down, you know, you wish yeah. people could appreciate it and see it. Um, but it takes time to do that. And most of the time they'll never know all the little things that went into it. It's just the yeah. nature of, of the way it is. There's nothing Agreed. that can be done. Even if, you know, even the member who plays the course daily will never right. quite, quite know what went into it. But we're right. also talking about two other things. And this is pertinent to, Jack Nicholas courses, the strategy and tactical side that goes into the design, that's the design side. And then there's the ultimate effect, the artistic side. I call it the experience side. And it's interesting that the, the Chris kind of talked about that. I really wanted to get into that, how that company had changed over the years. And you go back and look at those early 70s, early 80s Nicholas courses, and you can just look at photographs of them. And they're they're very linear. You can see the strategies. You know, it's classic dog legs, classic angled greens. The old uh, canard was, you know, every every golf course that he built was set up to, you know, for a high fade. I don't. That wasn't true, but it, you know, there's a reason that that there's that uh, reputation that he got. And then right. over the years, his courses became a little more fluid, a little more elegant, a little more broad, a little more flowing. There's a little bit more of an artistic composition to them. The first place I noticed it, I don't know if you've been there, but it's called May River outside of Hilton Head. Um, I have. Just, and this was in the early 2000s, and uh, I just thought, I've not, I haven't quite seen anything like this from, from Nicholas before. It was, yeah. just, it was just a beautiful golf course, and there were still those those shop making elements to it. There were still those, the bunkers that, that, you know, jutted into the fairway that you had to take on or, or play away from. They had all the classical strategic uh, elements, but also this beautiful flowing 
uh, integration of features and grassing lines and shaved yep. green shoulders and these things that uh, I wasn't used to. That's kind of when I first started to notice. And he said Bears Club, which I think was around the same time that they started to go through this transition. Yeah, and I I saw the main river, and I concur with you that there that that was the first time I saw Nicholas put a bunker right in the middle of the fairway yeah. or in, into an approach. And I was like, you know, I knocked on my head. <laughs> Am I on a Jack Nicholas design? Uh, uh, he rarely did that before I saw May River. And so I agree with you. Uh, the Bears Club, which I had a lucky, uh, lucky enough chance to play, uh, same thing. Uh, Chris was uh, spot on with that, doing something different. Uh, jutted up greens in the air, some down on the ground, uh, different angles. Uh, pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Pretty jazzy, as Pete used to tell me. And and Chris saying that, well, how did you get? How did now we get to do that? And and I say that we, uh, how come we never got to do that? When, well, what did he talk about? It was the margin of error that Nicholas could control that margin of error that he could spend there and adjust it if he had to at the Bears Club we're talking about. He could make changes. If he didn't like how it played out, he could instantly make changes. And your question was great. When did that become uh, artistic? And Chris said it was the Bears Club. Uh, May River, for the same reason you talked about. Uh, strategy is important. I never want to downplay that, Derek. Strategy is important. Right to left shots, left to right shots. Uh, layup shots, uh, get him to extend that shot uh, high into the air. Strategy is important, but the art is just as important, in my opinion. Otherwise, the Cypress Points, the Sand Hills, uh, the Fishers Islands of the world wouldn't be so highly regarded. Yeah, uh, no doubt about it. Strategy is so important. I mean, I think that's ultimately what lends to repeat, desire to repeat your round to go back and play it again to try different shots to take another route you make mistakes you want to go back and reroute yourself and see if there's a better way to do it or to try a shot again that that has to be there that's why we play but there's something that i think is i've come to believe it is equally important and maybe even a hair more and that is the art like you just said the beauty of the golf course mike kaiser nailed it he figured that out a long time ago that people would go back to beautiful locations. I mean, I think aesthetics to him are is our number one. I don't know that Mike Kaiser wants to spend a whole lot of time talking about, you know, bunker placement and and you know <laughs> how, you know how many alternative ways can you play this hole? Is it important? Yeah. Yes, but he knows yeah. that what most golfers respond to is that special feeling you get that you can't explain and you can't point to one thing. But when you go to a place. Uh, you know, like like Sherwood or Myakama, or Myakama. I'm sorry, I keep <laughs> uh, butchering the name of that place. But you get that feeling that that you are in a special place, and it's the cumulative yes. effect of uh, of your total experience. Tom Fazio is great at that. I mean, he he made a career out of creating that experience. It, the the it's greater than any one hole. It's greater than the shot strategies. It's greater than any one thing. It's just you get there and you feel like you're in a different environment, and it's special to you. And special, and special for me, for, uh, for Fazio, Wade Hampton, special artwork. Shadow Creek created artwork. Those are special places. For Nicholas, um, the Bears Club, uh, I could talk about Las Campanas, the artwork. 
I could talk about Cabo del Sol mm. and, and the three golf courses he did down in Cabo. Uh, I have not seen the one we were just talking about with Chris uh, on the cliffs of of of, Me- of uh, uh, Cabo. Cabo yeah. I, I, I want to go see that. But those are special places that you want to just keep going around and around uh, playing a time and time again. It's not because of par 72 and equal balance and, and strategy. It's about fun and entertaining golf. And that's what, as Chris said, there was a strategy part of it, but we also started to employ the uh, art part of it. And your question was spot on. Uh, you know me, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the art side uh, versus the strategy side, because that's what Cypress Point, that's what Prairie Dunes, that's what those golf courses do for me. Yeah, they they got there eventually, you know, and and they've been there for 20 years, I think. Yes. Uh, but they got there, and that is a very powerful combination. You have the branding of Jack Nicholas, mm-hmm. his name recognition, the love that all golfers have for him, the ability to draw important clients, clients who can make things happen. And then you have the ability of, of his team, Chris Cochran, and, and giving them the ability to create an experience, yes. a golf experience. Yes. It's It reminds me of what they used to say about, you know, Jack and Arnold Palmer back in the early 60s when Jack was up and coming and he was he was beating Palmer frequently and Palmer would get frustrated that he couldn't quite close it out and he knew kind of his his time had passed that there was a new mm-hmm. uh a, a new king, so to speak. There's only one king, but there was a there was the the, the golden bear. It, it was the golden bear's time, and right. there's the. It's kind of like an apocryphal thing. He's. It was like I don't. I forget who said it. Some golf writer, imagining that when Arnold Palmer went to heaven, they said, they said, you know, sorry, uh, Arnold. You know, Jack is going to be the greatest golfer of all time. But then he lean over and whisper to Arnold Palmer, but they love you more. And it's kind of like. But then as Jack. Uh, got older and became more mature as a player, he became beloved as well. You know, and there's no greater scene than the 86 Masters. You know, just think of the outpouring of support that he had. And it reminds me the architecture early in Jack's career. I don't know that, that he, with the Shoal Creeks and the Muirfield Villages notwithstanding, I'm not sure how beloved his golf courses were. But I think over the last two decades, they've got there with some courses that are really lovely, really playable, really fun in great environments. And we can love them. And what happens now? Uh, will I look? Will I watch closer? What happens at was it Panther Creek that they Panther that, National? Panther National. Will all of those things, the evolution of Jack Nicklaus, unfold itself at Panther National with help from Justin Thomas, Chris Cochran, all the people that are? Will this be the ultimate Jack Nicklaus course? You see why I'm interested in this. Because has the evolution of Jack, will it all play out at Panther National? We'll see. It sounds like an interesting project. Blank slate. Let's see what yep. the creative minds can come up with. And, and to, for, for Chris Cochran to talk about uh, the places that don't get any love, Castle Pines, Valhalla, Dismal River, uh, will, with, will the latest Jack Nicholas Panther National have all of those qualities that all of the years of the, that they've learned doing different things, what will, what will unfold? Uh, and man, did Chris have a, a wealth of information that he was willing to open up and share with us a little bit about how the Nicholas Design Work uh, company worked. 
and not even having the name Nicholas Golf Design in the beginning. I never knew that. I didn't either. Yeah. See, Jim, that's what I love about doing these podcasts with you because we get to talk to people that you know we know we heard we've heard of, and you know them. But every time you have a conversation, you 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 realize how much you don't know about somebody and how much <laughs> how much intelligence and experience they they have been they have accrued and and are willing to share yeah. with us. And yeah. you know, Chris Cochran, what are you going to do? Like, great guy, fun to talk yeah. to. He's been yeah. everywhere, done yeah. it all, and he's yeah. still going. And the funny thing is, we all thought that we knew Jack Nicholas golf design. Well, it didn't start off that way. Uh, it was Ed Etchell's Mark Bunkers with a paint can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. An, old, <laughs> an old superintendent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it. who would have known? The old that, pro and the old superintendent. We're yes, they, just like in the old days. Just like the old days. And who knew that the, the, the evolution of Nicholas would, would come from Ed Etchell's uh, and having so many talented people. He talked about Scott Miller a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris must have had an influence with Scott Miller. You know, I, I don't hear much of Scott Miller anymore, but I remember when Scott went on his own, yeah. he had a couple of good designs, uh, a couple of designs. And I thought to myself, all of the people that have gone through the door of Nicholas Design and how far reaching they are, but yet Chris is still in the belief that Nicholas uh, and, and what they do is where he wants to be. That was pretty cool. I'll mention one just since you brought it up, and then we'll we'll get out, let everybody get out of here if they're still listening. Uh, uh, before, before we got before we got our we had some technical difficulties before we had you on. Chris and I were ch- were chatting. He mentioned uh, he knows I live in Atlanta. He mentioned another guy who worked for Nicholas for a while named Mike Riley, and Mike yeah. Riley's based here in Atlanta and did some of the best work in this city that I've seen. Period. Full stop. Uh, he yeah. renovated at uh, at Atlanta Country Club. He uh, uh, redid the Standard Club, one of my, maybe my favorite course in in Atlanta after Peachtree. And he built a, he really uh, did a complete renovation of Rivermont with some really great kind of uh, classical era references and on a, not a great property. It's a spins through a residential neighborhood, but some of the most interesting golf. And he was another guy that Chris knew from Nicholas and just an example of, the talent that's come through that organization and talent. those types of people have, have given the Nicholas portfolio, all the, all the goodness that it possesses. Agreed. Agreed. And when you talk about uh, the, uh, the lineage of, of, uh, of uh, the golden age designs, uh, we can't go very far because we, we don't have a good track record of what happened, but Tilly Nass and Robert Hunter and, and, and Mick Morcom and, and the list goes on and on with McKenzie. But you think about Pete Dye and you think about Jack Nicholas, the people that were spun off in that era, the 70s and 80s, it is so far reaching, it's unbelievable. You know, and I'll, and I'll just leave it at this. I, that was so refreshing to me. I, I will look at Nicholas courses from here on out with a completely different perspective and a, and a, a keener eye for detail. Just, just because I know it's there because Chris is working on it. That's pretty cool, wasn't it? That's cool. All right, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, as always.